Lord tried to figure out where we're going in the fall. And in that last five weeks, uh, some of you know that I did a half Ironman and then did another triathlon and have kind of tried to make my way back into triathlons after this eight-year hiatus of not being around them. And uh, eight years ago, the last Ironman that I did, just quick story, I second lap of the race, I punctured my lung and basically finished the, the race with a hole in my lung and didn't know it. And two weeks later, ended up in the hospital and found out that I had this punctured lung and that I could have died. And <laughs> I had no idea. And so I took the, some time off. And so as I approached training this last year leading up to this half Ironman, you guys are going to get a bunch of Ironman stories this morning. But um, the Lord was really doing a lot in my heart because for me, my, my training is just far more than like going to do a race. There's something physical about it. There's something emotional about it. There's something spiritual about it. And I often find my, myself like in times of training, spending these really rich times with Jesus, like just me and him out on a bike and me and him out on a run and times to just sit and pray and sit and listen and I don't know about you, but my life doesn't allow for that very often. Anybody understand? <laughs> like, we live busy lives. And so sometimes that, that's just, it, it's, it's so sweet for me to get those times with the Lord. But this time around, as I was training, I kind of took a different approach to my training this time. In years past, it was all about going fast. And now I'm 43 years old. I'm like, I'm not going to go win the race, um, but I'm going to get out there and I'm going to finish and I wanted to just, I wanted my goal this time around to not be how fast I could be, not try to PR my last time, but to finish the race. I wanted to train in a way that I was healthy and, I, and my body was intact and I wasn't killing myself training. But in years past, it was all about PRing. It was all about killing myself and trying to beat the last time and beat the people around me and the people that I was training with and try to win, win, win. But one of the things that I've loved so much about triathlons specifically over the years is that they really aren't a race against other people. Triathlons are really a race against yourself. You're really, it's a race against the clock. You're trying to beat yourself in the race, not beat somebody else necessarily. And it's one of the reasons for me growing up, and some of you are going to maybe uh, balk at this a little bit, but I just hated team sports growing up. <laughs> I played baseball all, through, all throughout high school, and one of the things I hated about team sports was that somebody on the team could win or lose a game for you. And what I found was that I was way more inclined to these individual sports where I realized if we won or lost, if I won or lost, it was because something I did that I needed to make the correction and change it for next time. And so I found myself loving skateboarding, snowboarding, wakeboarding. I love golf. And, and now as I get older in life, like I love triathlons. Like I love the opportunity to just be racing against myself, basically. But I found over the years that I, I get so competitive with myself that I just want to win every time. And so, like, again, every time I would go out to train, I was trying to win. I was trying to beat my prior times. But this year was a totally different approach for me. Early on in my training this time, I, I asked a friend of mine that does a lot of triathlons. I said, uh, give me some advice about sustainability with regards to training, like with regards to life and family and work. Like, how do you do it? This guy's doing like 18 races this year. I'm like, how in the world do you do it? And he said, just put the time in and get the miles in. Don't worry about how fast you go. Just put the time in, follow the plan, get the miles in. 
You'll, you'll feel better. You're, you'll feel healthier. You won't get as injured. It removes the pressure of having to kill yourself every time you, you go out and you overtrain. And so that's what I did. I went out. I followed this training plan. But I went at the speed that felt best for my body. And sometimes that meant walking. Um, sometimes that meant slowing things down. Sometimes I felt stronger and I went a little faster. But no matter what, I followed the plan. I got the distance and the timing. And I realized something this time around. That, that I was actually enjoying the process of training even more, that I wasn't as stressed out. And I found that I was getting stronger and that I could feel it, but I didn't push it. And so I also realized that, that I was built a certain way. Like, if you haven't seen me, if it's not obvious, I'm 6'3", like 220 pounds, I'm not a runner. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to be an Olympic runner. For me, it's like running is a big deal, and it's hard to get this body to move very fast. But you put the time in. And you, fought, you get the distance in. And here was the aha moment for me, and I'll, and I'll get into this passage after this. But I was out on this run one day, and I started to ponder the, the overlap between, like, pace of training and pace of life. And, and it, in some ways, it, it, it kind of wrecked me. Because, you see, we, we've been conditioned in a culture to believe that the race that we're running is actually this race to keep up with, to have, to do, um, to accomplish, to acquire what everybody else has. That's the lie that our culture has bought. That the race that you're in is to keep up with everybody else around you. And so we don't know much about finding a, a healthy pace or a healthy rhythm. Like in America, that's actually really hard to do because for us, it's all about winning. It's not about pacing yourself. It's about beating the person next to you or keeping up with the person next to you. We believe in this motto that we can do anything that we put our minds to. And so we literally pay gurus in our culture to continue to tell us and make us feel good about ourselves, right? To continue to tell us, you can do it. You can do anything you put our, your mind to, to make us feel better. We literally pay people money for that. Nobody pays self-help gurus to tell them to slow down and find the pace that you were created to settle in. Do they? You pay them to tell you how to get what they have, how to keep up with them. That the race isn't about you, it's about keeping up with everybody else and having what everybody else has. So what we end up doing is looking to others to find our pace for us based on what they've done or what they have. And so we begin to establish our life rhythm based on other people. And, and I pondered this thought for four months of my training. Like every time I went out, I was thinking about this. Like, Lord, isn't it so interesting that I have a pace? That you've literally called me to run this race, and it's race that you've called nobody else to run but me, for me. And my responsibility, Lord, is really to tune my ears to you, my heart to you, to know what pace have you called me to run? What is the race that you've set forth for me to do, Jesus? And I kept thinking about the, the, the passage in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 that we're going to read through today. And what I found in myself was I found a sustainable pace. And I, and I found that I was learning that, that staying at that pace actually allowed me to go longer and to feel healthier doing it. And so here's where I get brutally honest with you guys. Like, I've struggled in years past as a pastor, right? Because even in my years prior to, like, running a nonprofit, a skateboard ministry, like, I've really struggled. 
Like, it's so hard to not look at other people around you, other pastors, other leaders, like what they do and what they don't do and what other churches do and what other churches don't do. And in the back of your head, you're playing this massive game of comparison. How do I keep up with them? How do I have what they have? How do I do what they do? And it's sort of like being out in a race. And instead of finding your pace on the track and making the finish line the goal, we spend so much of our time looking around at others and trying to keep up with them. Anybody ever tried to race the race and just stare at the person that's running next to them the whole time? Pretty awkward, isn't it? Pretty awkward. You want to know what people do not finish in Ironman? It's people that try to keep up with everybody else on race day instead of finding their pace. And if your goal is to keep up, then what a waste your day becomes because the race isn't enjoyable. It's not sustainable. And the reality is that you'll burn out and you won't end up finishing. We aren't called to run anybody else's race. You're called to run the race that the Lord has marked out before you. I haven't been able to get this passage out of my head during the months of training and just learning to be content with the pace of life that God has called Chris to run that isn't anybody else's pace. And knowing that to quicken my pace or to try to keep up with others was only going to leave me hurt. It's only going to leave me tired. It's only going to leave me frustrated. None of which would actually get me to the finish line. I'll fizzle out. I'll burn out. And, and I read so many articles on sustainability over the last couple of weeks. And, and the pace of Americans right now, it's staggering, you guys. I found that 80% of Americans feel as though their pace of life is too fast for them. 80%. 80% of people feel like they can't keep up. And, and also, there's a large percentage of suicides attached to uh, people feeling as though they can't keep up in life. This comparison game of I can't get to where somebody else is, constantly looking to other people to find our identity wrapped up in what they're doing and wanting what they have instead of what is it that the Lord has called you to. And, and what I found, even through the, some of the research that I was done, um, is that it's interesting that when you broke down how people spent their time, that they found that maybe we aren't as busy as we think we are. And, and the majority of people feel pressed for time and as though the, there's not enough time in a day. Like if I was to ask you guys this morning, how many of you feel as though you're pressed for time? Be honest with me. How many of you feel that? How many of you feel as though and make statements like there's just not enough time in the day? to get the things done that I need to get done. And so when they compiled all this research to see where people's time was going, they actually found that in the last 150 years, the average person's work week has gone from 70 hours a week in the late 1800s to 38 hours a week today. So how have our work weeks gone down, but our level of feeling busy and tapped out has actually skyrocketed? Like, it's amazing. And so what they found is that it's really more of an issue of where it is that your time goes that makes you feel busy, which you actually have control of. We spend an, an average of 10 hours a day on our personal care and our sleep, which seems good. Five to six hours a day working. Five hours a day on leisure activities, which includes our phones and technology, our hobbies, everything else is lumped in here. One hour a day on household-related stuff. One and a half hours a day eating and drinking, 
one hour a day purchasing goods and services. And the last thing that's on the list is 15 minutes a day on religious activities or civic activities. 15 minutes. So when you look at where our time goes and why we feel tapped out, I'll tell you why. We've literally tried to keep up with everybody else, do what everybody else is doing, but we haven't prioritized what it is the Lord has called us to. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how is it, church, that we are called to run this race? How is it? There's seven quick takeaways, and I'm going to go through this fast because I know it's hot, um, from this passage that, that help us understand how we run this race of life with endurance and with steadfastness. The writer of Hebrews opens up this passage with this picture of us being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He says, therefore, since you are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and I want you to think about something this morning. Even as we're here gathered in this park this morning, there's a couple things I was thinking about. One, how stinking amazing is it that you can sit on a piece of grass and be a part of a worship gathering this morning in 100-degree weather in North Idaho? How cool is this? Is this not amazing? Sounds pretty comfy to me, right? Because the reality is we know that 80% of the world are, is not living like this right now. That much of the world, followers of Jesus, do not have the liberty that we have to be here to gather in this way today. The other thing that we know is, as he talks about this great cloud of witnesses, that there were literally people that have gone before us in the church in the last 2,000 years that have literally surrendered their lives to Jesus over this book. That have brutally died as a result of following Jesus and adhering to the way of Jesus in his word. And yet we carry this thing around sometimes as though it's just like an accessory it goes into church with us, and it goes around with us, but do we actually believe what it says, and do we actually model our lives after Christ that we read about in it? And this great cloud of witnesses, if you go back to the, the prior chapter of Hebrews, you see the, oh, in chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, you see this, the writer make this series of statements that by faith, Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, that, Moses, that these legends of the faith, though commended for their faith, is what it says, never actually saw the promises they had, they had the faith that would be fulfilled, that they never actually got to live into it. In fact, many endured pain and many endured suffering for their faith, and they died before they could actually see the fulfillment of it all. And so understand that the author of Hebrews is writing this to a group of people going through intense hardship in the church as a result of their faith. Like people that are being tortured and murdered, persecuted for what it is they said they believed in. But his point in writing this was to remind them that regardless of what they're experiencing, and I better hear an amen for this, God is faithful. God is faithful. God's working in their circumstances for his good. 
even when they couldn't understand how they believed that he was. And so when the author goes on to say that therefore there's this great cloud of witnesses, he's encouraging them and he's encouraging us that that there are people that have gone before us and in some unexplainable way they're cheering us on in this race because they know what it's like to face opposition and yet keep moving forward. Like they get it, they lived it, and that we should be inspired by their legacy, that it actually should encourage us to know that we aren't alone on this journey, that life is hard, but that others have gone before us and others have actually finished well, and so can we. So how are we running in light of what, we, of, in light of what they longed for and looked forward to? What they've always hoped for, we actually have in Christ Jesus. Like, we're partakers of it. We're on the other side of this. They were on the other side of it, believing that the Messiah would come, believing that salvation would come, not being able to live to see the day when Jesus would come. But they believed it would happen. You don't have an excuse on the other side of it. Because we know he did. We know that he lived this sinless life, that he died a brutal death. And that he was tortured, that he was despised, that he was ridiculed for our sake. So that he bore the weight, the sins of the world on himself. So that you would step into this new season, this new era. Where you could partake in the salvation and the forgiveness, the grace, the hope and the peace of Jesus. As a result of what he did for us. What they hoped for, you actually get to partake in. And they still lived it in faith that it would happen. So seven quick things he says. He says to lay aside every weight. This is an interesting statement. We can like blast through this sometimes, but we want to sort of equate this to some bad things, some things that we need to stop doing. And so we we equate this to sin in this first part of this passage. He says that we lay aside every weight. But honestly, Part of finding the pace and the race that the Lord has called you to run is you realizing what you can and can't take along with you. And that's really between you and the Lord. The hard thing about this is that this means saying no to really good things. Saying no to things that other people were able to say yes to, but you weren't allowed to. Man, uh, before the race, before Ironman, I sat there with my bike, and I was literally looking for anything that I could get off that bike to save me some weight on race day. It was like, I don't want to carry extra water bottles. Like, how can I get rid of this? How can I streamline everything so that I can actually be efficient in the race that I want to go run? Because everything that you add to your bike is something else that you have to truck up Micah grade. And so I was thinking, like, how do I lighten my load? And that's what he's talking about is what, is, what are the things that you can lay aside that can help you run your race, that that aren't helping you to please your father right now. Anything that weighs us down, anything that diverts our attention, anything that zaps our energy, anything that waters down our passion, it has to go, and it's non-negotiable. The second thing is he says to lay aside the sin that clings so closely. In some translations, it says so easily ensnares or so easily traps us. Like sin doesn't just get in the way and slow you down. Sin actually stops us in the race. The first Ironman I did, on my first lap of the bike, I got red flagged because I was was riding too close to somebody 
in front of me on my bike. And they sent me to this penalty box to sit in this tent for five minutes. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, this is so frustrating. Like, don't they know this is slowing me down, right? Well, sin is like that in our lives. It's like an instant penalty box, right? It's like we, we get ensnared or trapped in these things that actually bog you down. They stop you in the race that you've called to run. The third thing is he says, let us run with endurance. Like, you need to run your race that's set out for you. You've been given a lane to race in. Like, Jesus has called us to run in our lane. You run your race with, in, with endurance. This, this word for endurance is this Greek word, hippomone, which means to remain or to stay. It's, it's basically the ability to withstand hardship and adversity and to continue to keep moving forward. Like, endurance is actually at the core of, it's at the center of the life of a believer, right? The answer isn't to run away. It's actually to stand fast. It's to not let go. It's to stay the course. The fourth thing he says is to look unto Jesus. This word looking means to stare. Have you ever had a staring contest with somebody? Like, how awkward is that, right? Where you just, like, lock eyes with them. And if you want to run the race and finish, you actually have to lock eyes with Jesus. There's three words that are used in the New Testament Greek for this word look. The first one is this word blepo, which means to quickly bounce, like to look real quick and then bounce away. The second word is this word oedos, which basically implies looking with the goal of understanding what it is you're looking at and trying to focus and trying to make sense of what it is you see. But the word that's used here in this passage is a word that's much deeper than these two words because it actually means to fix your eyes. It means to set your gaze. It means to not be moved. It implies not just fixing your eyes, but actually fixing your mind, like being determined that you know what the finish is and where it's at. That Jesus is it. We lock eyes with him and we keep going until the end. Like think about all the things in your life that take your eyes off of Jesus. Money and relationships, sports, retirement, politics, raises, houses, cars. Sometimes these goals, these things literally become the end goal for us. That we devote our lives, we fix our eyes on these things. Our lives get shaken up when these things get out of order but you cannot take your eyes off of him, even in the midst of hardship. When you go through hardship in life, you get disoriented. Like, like think about when you get punched in the gut or you fall and you hit your head. And at first, when you get punched in the gut or you fall and hit your head, you sort of get up and you kind of have to reorient yourself, right? And when it comes to suffering and hardship in life, I often look at it like that. It's like we, we fell and hit our head and we have to get up. And we have to stop for a second and make sense of what's going on and recalibrate, readjust, and fix our eyes back on Jesus. Because otherwise, we get so lost in the moment. We get so confused by what's going on in our life. People start to spin out. They start to run away. They disengage from the church. They want nothing to do with Jesus. They run as far as they can. And his encouragement here is that we look unto Jesus. And then he goes on to say number five, that we look to Jesus as what? He says the author and the finisher of our faith. That, that Jesus really is the supreme example of our faith. This word author means that he was the originator. That Jesus literally pioneered our faith for us. Like he's the one who originated all faith. When you came to faith in Jesus, it all began for you right there. Prior, prior to that moment, 
We're told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were separated from God, that we were as lost as lost can be. But when we came to faith in Jesus, that's when the race started for you. And I want you to remember that moment right now in your life when the race started, when you first locked eyes with Jesus. But also notice that Jesus didn't just author and originate your faith. What else did he do? He's the finisher of it. Like when you're looking to him, you remember who it was that started it. But, but for all those that think they're done, that they want to quit, that the race is too hard, you also look to Jesus as the one who finishes. He's the one that's going to get us through to the finish line. It's going to be by him and him only. Philippians 6, Paul says this, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus that he will complete the work in you. When you're running the race, you have to remember that he started it and that Jesus finishes it. Six, we need to look to Jesus, and this part's amazing, and run our race with joy. It says, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross. It's hard, right? It's challenging. But for Jesus, I think that joy that was set before him and I want you to hear this, is you and I. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? It was the forgiveness of the sins of the world. It was you sitting here today that Jesus was thinking about in that moment for the joy set before him, for you set before him, that he was willing to endure the cross, that he was willing to despise all shame and go through with it because he believed you were worth it. Church, he believed you're worth it. And it's so interesting that he goes on to say we run the race looking to Jesus, knowing that he endured the cross, and that Jesus despised all shame. And I'll end with that. Here some of us are. We're running hard. Some of us, we're like ready to give up. We're ready to throw in the towel. We're upset at the church. We're upset with other believers. We're wondering what happens to the church. We're thinking that we're just done with it and want to walk away from it. But this morning, might I encourage you that maybe you're disoriented and you need to get your eyes back on him. Can you imagine what Jesus endured for you and I? That he despised the shame. Think about all the things that have ever happened to you. People that have lied to you. Man, I know people have lied to me. People that have talked about you behind their back, people that have made fun of you, people that have taken advantage of you, people that have stolen from you, like whatever it is it may be. And we use that as our reasoning for abandoning the faith because of what other people have done to us. But this morning, I want you to think about Jesus, that he was lied to, that Jesus was mistreated, that he was backstabbed, that literally People were hired as witnesses to lie about him at his trial. And then Jesus stands before them, this innocent man. And then what did the government do? Not only did they condemn him as guilty, but they condemned him to death. He was put in the same category as murderers and terrorists. And what did Jesus do? He continued to take those steps to the cross. And now, where is Jesus as he ends this passage? Where's Jesus? He's literally seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what does that say about who Jesus is? That not only is it finished, but that Jesus is actually in the place 
of authority, that he sat down permanently in this place of authority. Hebrews 1.3 talks about this. Hebrews 1.13, Hebrews 8.1, 1 Peter 3.22, all mentions to this. So when Jesus went to the cross, he despised the shame. And this is so important. I want you to hear this this morning. That Jesus despised the shame, and he also accepted it willingly, which just does not make sense to me. Maybe that rings true for some of you today, that we need to despise the shame. Not just despise the shame, but maybe accept it, and accept it willingly. Like, you don't have to love what's going on in your life. You don't have to fight it, but we can accept it. Why? Because we trust God. Because by faith, we trust him. Because one of the great sins we have to lay aside is the sin of unbelief. That we don't believe he is who he says he was. That he's not going to pull through. That he's not standing at the end waiting for us. And that he's not guiding us through every step of the way. God says that things will get worse. And he also says that things will get better. God said that there would be troubling times, but he also says that he'll come again to deliver us from those times, doesn't he? That he'll come and that he will rescue us. That God will literally turn beauty from ashes. That he'll take all your pain and your hurt and create this beautiful story out of it that screams of Jesus' faithfulness and gives you the strength and joy not to just withstand it, but to conquer it joyfully. Amen? So my encouragement to you this morning, what's it look like to re-engage and to lock eyes with Jesus this morning? To stop going through the motions? What's it look like to actually learn to run at your own pace and to stop running next to everybody around you, looking at them, hoping to get to where they're at, to have what they have, to model your lives after them, but to really look to Jesus and say this morning, what's the pace and the race that Jesus has called you to run? And you don't need to apologize for the pace that he's called you to run. You do it in all joy. You continue to sprint towards him. This isn't about how fast you can get there. It's about us running this race at a pace that's sustainable because we want the finish. We don't want to burn out halfway. Amen? So let me pray for us. Uh, If you guys would stand with me. In a moment, I think we have like five people that are getting baptized this morning. And there's a couple things that in the last probably two years for me have become really sweet moments for the church. Because if you look back historically at the first century church, it probably didn't look like this, right? But there's a handful of things that we know that happened. We know that they gathered around the word of God. We know that prayer was central to what they were a part of. We know that fellowship and community was very important to the life of a first century believer. We know that they broke bread with one another. We know that they took communion together and they remembered Jesus every time they gathered. And we know that people got baptized into the community of faith for the purpose of proclaiming, not just this is private between me and the Lord, Jesus saved me, but like I'm going to make a statement to everybody else that not only is this an upward relationship between me and him, but I'm also going to tell all of you I'm taking this step because I'm going to devote, I'm going to sell my life out to the one true living 
God. And so this morning, I just don't hold it lightly when we have people that say, I want to get baptized. I actually think it's such a sweet moment as a church that we get to share in. It's one of those moments that becomes an anchoring piece of the church. Because if you travel anywhere in any other countries, like go to India and watch as people convert from Hinduism to Christianity, and what's the first thing they do that marks their transition from their conversion from Hinduism to Christianity, it's baptism. It's not just I prayed the prayer. It's that I actually stood before a group of people and said, I'm devoting my life to Jesus Christ. I'm turning from what I grew up in, what I once knew, to devote my life to him. And it's at that point in the waters of baptism that they're disowned from their families, that whole communities write them off because of their devotion to Jesus as the one true God. So this morning, as we partake in baptism with these people, man, would you just be praying for them? That this morning, this would be a mile marker moment for those that are being baptized, that they'll continue to use this as an anchoring point for the rest of their lives to look back on and be like, I made that commitment to Jesus on that day. Then I went down on the waters of baptism and what Jesus did was cleansed me from all unrighteousness. He forgave my sins and granted me a new life in him. And he's given us his Holy Spirit by which to live. And if you're here this morning, you've never been baptized, and maybe the Lord's tugging on your heart, we'd love to have you get baptized this morning. While we sing these last two songs, if you'd make your way down to this table and let somebody know you want to get baptized, we'll give you a t-shirt, kind of walk you through what we're going to be doing. And as soon as we get done singing this morning, Angela's going to bring everybody up here that's getting baptized. We'll introduce them to you. We'll pray for them. And then we'll make our way down to the river and go baptize some folks. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this time we get together. May we not take this lightly. Even as we go into singing these couple songs, God, I just pray that all the junk from our week could subside, Lord, that we turn and fix our eyes upon you this morning. As we sing these songs, would we sing them from our hearts and not just sing them to sing them? Jesus, I pray that by your spirit, you be at work in the lives of each person here because you know their makeup. You know each and every bit about them and what they're dealing with, what they're going through. You know the pace they're running. You know the sustainability in their own strength of what it is they're doing. But today, Jesus, I pray that we find peace and rest in you. I pray, Jesus, that we'd find a moment this morning where we could stop in the midst of our chaotic lives and take a deep breath and get reoriented this morning. And remember what's true, remember what's real, remember what others have died for that we get to step into. And may it be real this morning for us. May you solidify it in our hearts. And maybe as we leave this place this morning, God, would we continue to carry that with us and be anchored to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.